Welcome to the Intelligence Download, a podcast from BAE Systems. I'm Ben Tudor. Today, we're talking about the impact of the Bangladesh bank heist on financial institutions and further afield. We detailed this attack and the events surrounding it in a series of short films this year called The Thread, which I helped put together. You can find this film online at basystems.com forward slash the thread. In these films, we trace the activities of the threat actor behind the attack, but what we didn't go into in very much depth was the wider impact of the heist itself and how it changed how banks and other organisations secure their networks and systems. I'm joined today by two of the stars of the film, actually, uh, James Ormond Talbot, head of our incident response team, and Stephen Blackburn, senior financial crime consultant at BA Systems. Um, James, could you tell me a little bit about your background and um, the work that you do for us at Applied Intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I head up our instant response service. Uh, that's a, a global team that we have that uh, helps organisations respond to uh, attacks. So an organisation would uh, might suffer from a cyber attack and call our team in uh, to try and help them respond to it. Um, that means us coming in and doing some investigation work for them, uh, helping them to evict the threat actor and recover back to, to business as usual. Uh, my background is in uh, forensics, incident response for about the last 10 years or so. Uh, I used to work for the Metropolitan Police in London doing digital forensics um, and uh, have, uh, have evolved my career from there. Fantastic. And this isn't just banks either. It's pretty much any kind of organisation you can think of. Absolutely. Um, you and your team help. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously we do do work in the financial sector as well, but uh, across many different industries, uh, across many different sizes of organisation, it can be a, a small 50 or 60 man organisation going up to a large uh, enterprise with thousands of employees. Um, we'll help them uh, recover from these normally quite sophisticated attacks. Uh, organisations that might not have the um, expertise to handle these in-house uh, would come to us. We're doing this day in, day out. Uh, hopefully, for any one organisation, it's a one-off. So uh, we come in with the expertise that we have and the knowledge that we have uh, and try and help them uh, recover. Great, thank you. And Stephen, you're from another part of Applied Intelligence. Uh, so we've got cyber, we've also got financial crime or financial solutions. Um, you've been a guest on the podcast before. But if you could quickly uh, sum up uh, some of the work that you do and, and the areas that you cover. Sure. I work with mainly our banking clients, but other clients in the financial services sector. And the aim is to help support them in the fight against financial crime. My role covers specifically money laundering, sanctions, um, know your customer, customer due diligence activities. And I work with them to identify needs and look at how BAE products and services can help them to bolster that fight. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so the, the first question I had really was around the... Um, the, the way that the Bangladesh bank heist differed from previous attacks. Now, I think uh, Kristen in, in the films mentioned that before it's very much a case of cyber attackers having a go or attacking individual accounts, um, you know, individual detail compromise leading to account compromise, leading to theft of a small, a relatively small amount of money uh, from an individual account. And what the attackers did this time with Bangladesh Bank is they went for um, the crown jewels almost. They, they, they compromised the bank itself, um, and they use that to, uh, they use that access to um, make some of the more secure systems in the bank do 
quite big transactions or move, make large, large transactions uh, further afield um, on a scale that we hadn't really seen before. So could you just go into a little bit of detail about what's happened in the past um, and uh, just sort of uh, talk through um, how this changed uh, attitudes towards cybersecurity? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as, as you quite rightly said in the, uh, in the, the videos, we'd mentioned that prior to the Bangladesh bank heist, it was very much um, opportunist criminals that were going after, as you said, individual accounts. Um, indiv you know, rather than actually attacking the bank, they would attack the weakest part of the chain, which was generally the person that held the account. Um, what happened with this was, um, obviously, they started to attack the core banking systems. Now, uh, a lot of financial institutions had kind of... Um, uh, they kind of held behind, uh, held themselves behind the fact that a core banking system is a very proprietary system. It's very sophisticated. Um, it generally runs on very old hardware that um, it's very hard to find people to code for, etc. Um, so they were kind of relying on the fact that it's a completely proprietary system. Threat actors aren't going to know how to how to actually uh, attack it. Um, when the Bangladesh bank heist happened. Um, it proved that for a sophisticated threat actor, they're going to put the time and the effort into understanding those systems. They're going to do a lot of reconnaissance. They're going to understand these proprietary systems so that they know how to attack it. It's not just that they'll start attacking an organization and uh, you know, make moves on their objective within the first week or two weeks even. They will be in the system for months, years in some cases, trying to understand exactly how all these systems work, creating custom malware for these core banking systems um, and using those to obtain a lot more money than they would be able to obtain if they were just attacking individual accounts. Um, so it, it kind of really, it was a bit of a paradigm shift really in terms of the attacks that we're seeing and uh, it, it kind of focused people's minds on the fact that really nothing is safe. Once you have a sophisticated, uh, well-funded threat actor who has the resource, they're going to put the time and effort into actually making this. The payoff for them is fantastic. Um, so it's worth them putting the time and the resource into doing it. Um, what that means is that we, trying to defend against them, need to put more time and resource into, into doing that as well. Yeah, I, th I think I totally agree with that. And, and also, it was very much the fact that as well as understanding the systems and the way that, that the, the, the technology systems worked, they also took the time to understand the bank processes in that. And they took steps to circumvent, so preventing tickets being printed when, when the messages were sent. Um, it wouldn't have stopped the bank detecting that, but it certainly delayed it enough um, you know, to, to make a difference in the detection of that activity. So, so there's also those processes, the way that the banks worked, um, came into the view of that as well as all the technology side of things. Absolutely, and, and, and that's something that we've seen repeated again and again. Um, and, and since Bangladesh Bank and a number of other things happened around the same time, um, it, it really is showing that they will put that time and that effort into, into doing it. And as you said, not just understanding the technology, but the process, the business process around those systems. Um, and uh, you know, again, in, in similar financial attacks, um, in non-financial attacks as well, we've seen exactly that same thing happening. They will spend, the threat actors will spend sometimes up to 18 months understanding what the business is doing, how the business operates, um, and circumventing those controls. They might be technical controls, they might be process-driven controls, but they will find a way to circumvent that. Yeah, and the, the rewards are vast as well, as we're sort of mentioning. It's, you know, it's, it's almost like the difference between mugging somebody for their smartphone, and I'm sure nobody around the table does that, mm. um, 
but you know, mugging somebody for a smartphone or stealing an entire consignment of brand new smartphones from a warehouse. Um, you know, the, the time and um, effort invested by the criminals to do that tends to be representative of what they expect the payoff to be, and in this case it was a significant one. Absolutely. I think the other interesting thing as well from my perspective um, was that um, you know, once the... <coughs> Once the uh, the sort of uh, the, the attack unfolded and and we started looking at the sort of f- forensic side of things, um, it emerged that there had been other similar attempts to break into other banks around the world and and steal from them as well, um, and that was quite a revelation if I remember rightly at the time that people um, hadn't necessarily been expecting this that these criminals have been having a go at, at different banks over the years with varying levels of success and Bangladesh Bank actually just stood out because they were to a certain extent successful. Yeah, absolutely, and it's um, it really did. As as with anything that we investigate, we once we find out um, uh, not just the motives of the attacker, but the technology that the attacker is using, the malware that they're using, the kind of um, uh, the TTPs we call them, the the markers of how they how they operate and what they use to obtain access to the systems. Um, once we find that out, it then gives us uh, and the entire community something to then start looking for. Um, and very quickly, as we saw back then, um, we see that once we start to know what to look for, because we've done that investigation, um, people will start retrospectively looking back at their own systems um, and seeing that actually, yes, they, they, they perhaps weren't looking in the right place at the right time, um, but looking back with new information, they can then see that there's been an attempt. Um, and and you know, that's, that's something that we see relatively often perhaps not on the same scale uh, but we do see that obviously you know we're learning more and more about the threat actors about all the threat actors that we come up against um, on a daily basis um, and part of responding to incidents is going back historically and seeing and, and saying well what were they doing prior to us detecting it uh, and using that information to, to kind of get a bigger picture and yeah absolutely it, it I think it caught people off guard. Um, as you said, people weren't necessarily expecting it, um, but it was there all the time. Yeah. And I, the, the size of the of, of the problem uh, was was obviously significant. It, it is very easy, um, for instance, in a retail banking situation where fraud does happen, uh, but at a much lower level, perhaps much more frequently, much lower. Uh, it's very easy to to categorise fraud as, for instance, credit risk. So if if, a, if an account bursts out, if an account goes bad, um, is is it a fraud? Was it intentional? Is it a, a credit risk? Um, it, it's very easy to say, okay, that's credit risk, and that, and that muddies the picture a little bit. So knowing in hindsight what you're looking for. Um, can be very useful in, in, in the going back over that and saying, well, actually, we, we've counted this as, as, as a credit risk, but actually it looks more like fraud. So I think the, the size of the, of the Bangladesh heist um, sort of made people wake up and, and actually think a little bit more about the rigour of, of look, that looking back, not just in the big um, frauds, but but also in in their day to day frauds to to say okay we need to be a little bit better at at, at categorising things. I, I, I guess the other thing as well is that the, the facts of the case didn't all emerge at once. There was a sort of you know, yeah. you know almost a billion dollars almost goes missing. It turns into a hundred million to eighty one million, um, and over the course of several weeks, information kind of dripped out. Um, more facts and more clues were discovered over the course of the investigations, both you know within the bank itself, in you know 
among the wider community and certainly from the incident response and threat intel teams here, we started to unpick the story a little bit and discover more about the, the nature of the, the threat actor, the, the techniques they'd used. So it wasn't an immediate sort of, you know, you know, you know exactly what's happened. It's more of a sort of very slow sort of uncovering of, of what's taken place. How did the, the banks, how did the cyber, cyber community change their um, approach and response as a result of that information coming to light? Yeah, the, uh, the the banks obviously were very concerned with that. Um, with, without wanting to defend banks, um, they're there to do a job, they have a business to run, um, and they need to get the balance right between putting in very strong controls that, that might actually impact customers' abilities to do business if the controls are too strong, um, and and then you know that their their business where they they actually have to make the bottom line they have to make their profits in order to operate um so so there is that that uh, that 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 um, balance that they need to strike um i think people were much more vi vigilant um i don't think uh, I, d I didn't see a a um a strong push to, to actually really strengthen, um, re really focus on controls, um, but I think there was a, an, an increased vigilance in there, so, so banks were looking out more. Uh, there was swift took quite swift swift action, immediate action, uh, in order to help banks to to look at their um, estate, to look at the security, the physical security particularly. Um, but also the technology security of their systems that were interacting with the SWIFT network yeah. um, and encouraging customers to, to, to be more vigilant in that area. Mm. Um, and it also has sparked a longer-term interest and a focus by regulators and banks who um, generally want to do the right thing as well. But it, it's, it's sparked a focus in things like the, the correspondent banking processes where banks like the Federal Reserve are, 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 are giving services to other banks and moving money around the world. Um, so so there, there's been a, a higher folk degree of focus on that mm -hmm. particular area as well. Yeah, and it's worth noting that the SWIFT network itself wasn't compromised. It was an endpoint Ex exactly, that yeah, yes. was yeah. accessed as a result of a compromise at the yeah, bank itself. Yeah. And it's sort of worth spending a bit of time on that because I, I remember, I, you know, I seem to remember Swift putting in place a pretty strong attestation process almost immediately after that um, made sure that if you were uh, a Swift customer, you had to meet a certain number of um, requirements um, to, to, you know, to ensure security of, of the. Yeah, and, and certainly my, my experience in in the banking industry in uh, back office systems is that that the servers that provide that access to the Swift network typically would be one of the most secure parts of the organization. Um, so it would be very, very difficult to have, as even as a member of staff, have access to that server. Uh, it was very, tended to be very, very controlled as, as to what was uploaded. So uh, th there was obviously some laxity there uh, around the globe in, in, certain, in certain areas. Um, so so that, that was a, uh, you know, a, a key point of, of compromise and I think as we mentioned earlier the, the fraudsters had understood very well uh, what was going on, what kind of security controls, how to circumvent them uh, you know, to, to actually get into that server and that interface in, in the first place. Yeah, because I, I seem to remember the, the uh, company that 
provided the incident response team putting out some pretty interesting story or telling some pretty interesting stories about what they discovered when they went in um, yeah, at the bank and the way that the, circum- yeah, the, the, the controls have been circumvented was made for quite fascinating reading, um, slightly terrifying reading as well. Um, just looking at the, um, the response and the sort of lessons learned, um, uh, how do organisations now defend themselves? Obviously not giving away the story, yeah, not giving away too much information, but mm-hmm. how have organisations changed the way that they, they defend themselves against this sort of attack or this sort of attacker? And it, it's sort of been an evolving story over the last kind of few years. Um, and again, it was one of the first instances where we had a sophisticated threat actor um, attacking proprietary systems that um, people believed were secure due to their proprietary nature. Um, you know, security through obscurity, you know, going back sort of 10 years ago, there was a, a, you know, a lot of debate around the fact that if you make it obscure enough, no one's going to attack it. Um, doesn't always happen that way. Uh, and, and, and as we've seen, you know, if the rewards are there, then the threat actors are going to attack it. Um, really, you know, it, it's been an evolving story over the past kind of 10 years or so. Um, now, uh, you know, if you go back 10 years, uh, getting investment and getting attention of, of boards for cybersecurity was was extremely difficult to do. Um, to actually get in front of an executive board and explain to them what their cybersecurity risks are and how much money they need to invest in protecting against it, um, you, you just wouldn't get the time. Now, obviously, uh, you know, not just Bangladesh Bank, but um, a lot of financial systems uh, have been attacked. There have been a lot more public cyber attacks. Um, it's very much now a priority for boards of organizations to address the cybersecurity risk, um, which is a fantastic thing. Um, I still don't think we're 100% there. Um, you know, now we're in a position where companies are finding it easier. It's not easy, but it's easier than it was to get that investment. Um, it's getting easier to demonstrate the risks because these attacks are so public now. Um, you know, one one big cyber incident in the news, um, and suddenly every CEO and CFO and everything is going to be on the uh, on the security team trying to find out if they're vulnerable. Um, so uh, you know, getting that investment is is key. But actually, now there's a lot of problem in directing that investment in the right places. Um, we still see. Um, organizations taking a compliance-based approach to security they're looking at it as a compliance problem and they're saying you know we've got these regulations that we need to comply with there are these standards we need to comply with what do we need to do to comply with these and it's a very tick box exercise Um, what we need to try and do and what we're trying to encourage certainly our customers to do and 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 we would encourage every organization to do is to take a more risk-based approach to this Um, and there's, there's a fantastic analogy that, unfortunately, I didn't come up with, uh, but there is a fantastic analogy of, of the compliance versus the risk-based approach. And uh, if you're coming up to a, a, a pedestrian crossing and uh, you, you look at the lights and the light is green, the compliance-based approach says you can cross, so you go and cross the road. Uh, the risk-based approach is uh, seeing that the light is r- green but still looking both ways and seeing the massive articulated lorry that's hurtling down the road at 50 mile an hour that's about to hit you. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, the compliance-based approach is as good as a foundation. Uh, we need to see people taking a more risk-based approach and really evaluating the risk of um, to their organization. Um, a lot of that comes down to threat intelligence. It's understanding the threat landscape. It's understanding 
what threat actors are going to want to get from your organization, how they're going to get it, um, and how you can best uh, uh, invest to secure yourselves from that. You can never protect against everything. So it's understanding what are the best things to divert your effort into. Um, so, and, and you know, slowly we're seeing people, because of attacks like this, um, and because of the more public nature of attacks now, um, it is getting more uh, investment, it's getting more time with boards. Um, we just now need to make sure that they are using that time and that investment wisely. Yeah. I don't want to get too much into uh, the sort of part two of this podcast, which we're going to be filming in the new year. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I think it, it, it's, it's worth sort of mentioning, and um, Steve, maybe you could, you could talk a little about this, that when you look at this risk-based approach, there's also compliance and fraud teams in the banks, as well as the cyber team, who hold quite a lot of information. They may see interesting activity and, and maybe put two and two together, but not put it together with the three from the fraud team and the five from the from the cyber team and, and get to the full 10 in time. But that's changing now a little bit, isn't it? The attitudes within the banks changing towards sharing intelligence, sharing information between these sort of almost siloed parts of the organization. It, it is, and, and the, key, the key is about intelligence sharing across um, cyber fraud, compliance, everything that goes on. One of the things about the, the Bangladesh incident is that it was found out not by a, a cyber malware detection system, it was found in the banking world, in the correspondent bank, um, and, and then that was you know, pushed back and, and things started to come to light. So it needs everybody working together. Um, and you know, one, one of the big things, again, an analogy that I tend to use is, you know, there, there's a big focus on cyber, which is, which is absolutely right. But, you know, cyber is a little bit like pulling up the drawbridge on the castle um, so that people can't get in the front door. But if you've got a back door that's open that people can come in and out of, then you know, your, your drawbridge isn't really going to help you. So you really need to cover every single base. You need to cover every um, entrance, every piece of activity that you can. So one of the big challenges in that is technology. So within, particularly within banks, but I think it's the same for uh, any other industry, is that the, the systems, the people that are looking at cyber incidents are not the same systems or people that are looking at uh, compliance or looking at fraud. And it, it's sometimes very dif difficult for banks to get the information that's needed from the right place into where it's needed. And that, that I think that's particularly true of cyber. It tends to happen in um, sort of a, a porter cabin somewhere in the car park, <laughs> generally, I think. Yeah. Um, you make but it sound so glamorous. <laughs> yeah. um, so if you want a glamorous career uh, in cyber, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it, it t tends to happen in, in a very segmented part. And, and that information through legacy systems, acquisitions, is not necessarily carried through so that fraud systems, fraud investigators can make good use of it. That's something that's definitely changing, and I think there is a big will to, to bring that together, but obviously the practicalities of that, it's going to take time to do that. Absolutely. Um, and I do think it's key, as you said, you know, it's one of the key factors of, of particularly the Bangladesh Bank instance. Um, uh, you know, there, there needs to be more uh, uh, tying together between the, the two disciplines. Um, how we do that, and, and I think, you know, it's going to take time to get there, uh, but there's still some way to go. I think that's the best thing to do. And, and also, I think globally in, in that, um, what, what I know of that incident is a bank's 
AML system, fraud system, would not have detected that activity uh, within the bank uh, because of where it was happening and, and the way it was done. The bank systems wouldn't have detected that. They, they would have picked it up when they came to reconcile accounts, um, you know, which may have been days later. So uh, having, having the systems there doesn't necessarily protect you. You need a, a global view, and, and there are a number of initiatives, you know, the Intelligence Network, um, uh, Jim Lert in the UK, who are looking at actually bringing some of that intelligence together and making it usable for different people. Yeah, cause it's, it's almost a bit difficult not to beat ourselves up about this. And um, whenever you have an instance of this kind, the forensics will pull up the information from within a bank systems or within an organisation systems, and people say, well, of course, you had all the information in your hands it's like not necessarily together you know it's 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 quite easy for organizations to beat themselves up or commentators to beat organization organizations up and say look you know you had all the information to hand well actually sometimes it's it's that information sharing and that intelligence sharing is a very difficult thing to do and it's it's quite encouraging to to hear that banks are starting to do that and it's uh, yeah I think you know, we've got to take into account the pace of change. The pace of change in in the cyber world is 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 phenomenal. You know, things are changing on a on a daily basis. Um, to try and keep up with that, you know, and, and I, it's not just limited to banks, but I think a lot of organisations um, still have a very closed uh, sort of uh, approach to security and intelligence sharing. Um, you know, they're not necessarily willing to give up any information you know people aren't necessarily willing to go out and say they've been breached and this is how they were breached but actually we need that information every organization needs that information to be able to formulate a plan of of how to attack that Um, it's not just a problem that's limited to one organization it's affecting everyone Um, and uh, yeah i think you know it's 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 it is good to see that the banks are are starting to address that 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 crossover Um, yeah i think yes there's still a way to go but um, i think we'll get there I don't want to open up a whole can of worms at this stage of the podcast, but um, open banking is likely to, to shake things up even more. Um, you know, the, the sort of, the, I was talking to uh, Gareth Evans, um, uh, another one of our, our sort of uh, experts the other day about, um, uh, about PSD2, and he was saying, well, you know, of course, all the sort of indicators of fraud, you know, things like device ID, um, voice signature, and so on and so forth that banks use are now almost being sort of swept away. You know, with open banking, you can have a third party that has direct access to your bank account. That sounds terrifying to me. Um, <laughs> and it also sounds like it's going to have a huge impact, um, not just on European banks, but there's other countries where open banking is being adopted. If you have a book in one of those countries as a bank, um, it doesn't really matter where you are, you're still going to be affected by it. Um, it sounds like there's quite a lot of shake-up coming, and um, maybe... Uh, there's never a good time for a cyber attack, but maybe Bangladesh Bank was a, a wake-up call. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think, as ever, things are becoming more interconnected. Um, you know, initiatives like open banking are coming out that means that, um, uh, you know, potentially more organisations are going to have access to more sensitive data about uh, individuals and, and their accounts and things like that. Um, you know, and, and there are what we've got to bear in mind is that, uh, again, going back to the compliance-led approach, um, think about you know GDPR, how long it took for GDPR to, to actually get enacted. Um, you know, th- th- there's a gap of like two or three years, in some cases more, mm-hmm. uh, between a problem occurring and then regulation addressing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
we, we as, 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 as bad as it sounds, we need those kinds of high-profile attacks to bring awareness to it. Um, and, you know, going back to the compliance of the approach, we need people to move away from the compliance of the approach because the compliance is, at minimum, going to be a year behind what is actually happening in, in cyber. Um, uh, we, yeah, we really need people to take that approach and we need security uh, to be addressed when these systems are being designed. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a problem that can be addressed later on. Uh, it really needs to be put in uh, at the start. Yeah, and I think it, it does lead to banks having, and other financial institutions, other, or other industries even, being more vigilant um, and recognizing that it's not just a technology problem, it's not just a process problem, but it's it's everybody's problem. You know, fr from the, the the front end, from tellers and uh, relationship managers, right the way through, everybody needs to be vigilant. Everybody needs to be looking out and be empowered to take action on on what they find, so that the the chain is complete. You can't look at just one link in the chain and say, yeah, we've covered, we've smashed money laundering, we've smashed fraud, we've smashed cyber. You have to look at that whole chain um, and look at the weakest part of that chain so that the whole chain is working together. And, and particularly if you look at things like open banking, uh, you know, you, you need all of the constituent parts of that chain to work together uh, because otherwise, you know, if there is a compromise, uh, you're going to be really stuck when it comes to trying to identify what has actually yeah, happened. Yeah, and very often it's piecing together little pe little little pieces of information that give you the the insight into what's going on uh, across that that whole chain of events so that that's necessary to get everything all in one place together now one group we haven't really covered in this are the, are the criminals themselves um and um you know obviously Bangladesh bank was an example of a, a group seeing an opportunity making an investment um and stealing a lot of money from people who frankly really needed it um the rest of the criminal world has kind of woken up to this and they're now battering away at banking systems, they're battering away at, at organisations. Um, how did uh, criminal groups, and this is probably stretching it because I'm sure you're not personally connected, but how are, how are the criminal groups responding to this? How have they changed their tactics and their strategies and their approaches? It, uh, so when you look at um, criminal groups in particular, uh, you know, we, we, we generally will split... The, the kind of threat actors that we look at will split into one of, of normally three categories. Mm -hmm. There's there's the, the criminal groups, mm -hmm. um, the nation state type actors, and um, your activists. Um, the criminal groups tend to not put as much resource into uh, these kind of attacks. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a big spate of um, infections of uh, two two strains of malware, one called Emotet and one called Trickbot, mm -hmm. um, that are, are centered around um, gathering people's online banking credentials. Mm -hmm. So malware gets infected on the system, digs into their browsing history and, and finds or you know saved passwords and things like that, finds all the online banking credentials and, and, and sends them. Um, so what we have seen is is the use of, of more customized malware like that in the in the criminal space mm -hmm. um, that spreads very easily. Um, actually, what we see happens with with Emotet and Trickbot specifically is that one particular group will um, deploy it to an organisation and they will sell access to that organisation to lots of other different criminal groups. Um, so they can deploy other malware. They can do lots of things. There's a whole marketplace for compromised organizations mm. um, and so the criminal groups are, are still kind of a, attacking the individual rather than the organization mm. um, 
you know, there is there is something about the proprietary systems. You know, it, it does take a level of resource and a level of investment to identify how to attack that proprietary system. Mm. And the, the criminal groups just aren't there at the moment. Um, the, the nation state threat actors, the type of threat actors that we see undertaking the Bangladesh bank heist, um, absolutely do have the resource to do that. And as, you, as we've said, the payoff is much greater. Um, but for the criminal groups, um, it's much easier for them to either purchase a bunch of, of already infected access to already infected systems uh, where they can obtain credentials um, or they'll go out and deploy it themselves. Um, so they will still, uh, certainly from our experience, target the individual. It's all about going for the low-hanging fruit. Um, uh, you know, it, they will go for that individual access because generally, you know, you can rely on a few individuals having a bad password, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not having two-factor authentication enabled on their accounts, um, and you can get access to their accounts. And if you've even got one or two accounts that you can grab a, you know, ten or twenty grand from, for the organised criminals, it's worth it. Um, you know, not necessarily much for the, uh, the nation state actors. Fantastic. So, any final observations from either of you before we wrap up? Um, Stephen, any thoughts about what's likely to happen next year? I will go to the gym more. <laughs> but there, there will be an increasing focus on, I'm sure, on other areas of the financial services industry uh, a lot of the focus has been particularly on the retail industry uh, you know and rightly so you know in terms of that low hanging fruit and and you know the involvement of people but uh, there there will be more uh, in terms of correspondent banking services um, trade in international trade focus uh, obviously um, blockchain bitcoin type activities uh, are are going to continue to be significant uh, both in terms of providing technology for banks to use and providing technology for criminals to use to escape detection. Um, but there's also you know, already a big focus on uh, what we call gatekeepers, so things like uh, the legal profession, estate agents, um, th- those, those kind of um, people who have access or control over finance um, but not necessarily part of the financial services organisation. So th- there's a big focus on um, them playing their part in that whole picture again um, and providing information. Um, initially, probably on a compliance-led basis, uh, which, which is you know, sad, but you know, it needs needs to, to have that compliance aspect in there. But hopefully, as as that industry grows, as as those compliance and the understanding of the the value grows that they they will actually see that they're playing a part in the global fight fantastic thank you james any thoughts uh yeah you know i think uh, in terms of where we need to get to um you know you you just mentioned it you know that compliance-based approach that we have currently is 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 what people need to do and it's great to set that foundation uh, we need the uh, the industry to move towards a, a, a much more risk-based approach actually mm-hmm. analyzing the risks that is is is, is, a, is present to their business and addressing those risks um, I think uh, you know in terms of where 
we need to get to. We do need to see much more intelligence sharing. Um, you know, the, the, the threat intelligence community, the cyber threat intelligence community um, is still a very close-knit community and um, does uh, do intelligence sharing. We need to see that on a much wider spectrum. Um, and, you know, we've got in initiatives like the Intelligence Network where we're trying to enable, um, uh, trying to encourage that kind of collaboration. Um, it really isn't a problem that any one organization can tackle. Um, and as, as an entire industry, we need to be looking at this and, and identifying how we can address these threats. Um, I, I think we are going to see, you know, we're certainly not going to see any of the nation state threat actors uh, backing down. We are going to see more um, big breaches, uh, both in the financial sector and, you know, in, in other industries as well. Um, uh, you know, criminals certainly aren't going to stop uh, doing what they're doing. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's two aspects to it. There's, there's uh, from an organization enterprise level point of view, uh, we need to make sure that organizations are, are properly securing their networks. From an individual's point of view, uh, I think we need to do a much better job of enabling people to be secure more easily. Um, you know, things like two-factor authentication and things like that are great if they are uh, uh, enabled and if they are actually configured properly. Um, but unless you make it easy for the user to use, they're not going to use it, uh, or they're going to find a way to bypass it. Um, you know, there's the old, uh, <laughs> going back a number of years, and you probably still find them, uh, you see uh, webcams online where people have got a, a two-factor authentication token uh, pointed to it, a webcam pointed to it that's on a public website so that all of their people can, <laughs> can log in using a two-factor authentication token. Uh, so we need to stop people doing that um, but you know we, we do need to make it easier for people to be more secure um, that will make the job difficult for the criminals um, we need to make sure our internal networks are more secure so that uh, you know the, the kind of nation state type threat actors have a much more difficult job um, it's not gonna be easy uh, but yeah we're gonna get there through collaboration marvelous um, James Stephen thank you both very much indeed and many thanks for listening to the Intelligence Download. Don't forget to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or any podcast app. And if you'd like to catch up on the film that we talked about at the top of this podcast, go to basystems.com forward slash the thread. Mm -hmm.